Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Now to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12, this story that I've just reminded the kids of and and reminded all of us of. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the Magi secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, of, uh, and going into the house they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Most gracious Father, as we come once again to your word, I ask that you would add your blessing to this reading of your word and that you would strengthen me by your spirit, that I may proclaim the good news of Christ and his birth very clearly, that we all might be strengthened in our faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week as we looked at Luke 2.11, we saw Jesus presented as the true historic Savior who came to, to save his people. He was the Messiah. He was in the line of David. We saw this incredibly rich Christology announced in that one little verse in Luke chapter 2, verse 11. And this week, as we read this story and think about this story of the Magi, we're going we're gonna to see that this one who was born in the line of David, this one who was announced as the Savior, this one who was the, the Messianic King, was so not just for ethnic Israel, not just for, for that nation of people that descended from Abraham, but for the whole world. And we're going to see that, that oftentimes there, there's, as we see recorded throughout the Gospels, a difference in how the Jews received him and how the world received him. But as we read this story, we notice that there are some very interesting things going on. 
There are stars that are announcing to these pagan wise men that, that we're not real sure what a magi is in the first place, but, but they see some star that causes them to travel. And then this star in verse 9 seems to move. There, and then they have dreams. It's just wild. And that's the first point. The anomalous revelation of Christ to the world. Because in many ways it, it was an anomaly. When we think about what's going on in this story, if someone showed up today or, or, or this day and age and said, Hey, I saw a star and it rose and, and so I decided to follow it and it led me to you. We would be like, yeah, we're done here. I have nothing for you. We, we wouldn't have the first clue of what to do with that kind of conversation. But in the ancient Near East, there, were, there was this group of people that, that are, are the magi, that sometimes translated the wise men, sometimes sung about as the three kings from the Orient. They weren't kings. They were wise men. They, they were men who often served as, as kind of uh, uh, aides to the king. They were known for, for being skilled in astronomy and, and, and reading the patterns of the stars and, and making predictions of that kind of thing. And, and they had skills in magic. And, and, and they were well-learned men who had wisdom and a wisdom of the ways of the world. And, and all of these things kind of combined into this kind of mystical group of people. But in the ancient Near East also... It wasn't just them that looked at the stars and kind of saw signs there. It wasn't uncommon in the ancient world, even outside of the, the ancient Near East, for if, if a king saw a falling star to read that as, as a prediction of his own downfall. In fact, at one point, Nero, seeing such an event in the sky, started just offing any ruler serving under him, hoping that that would satisfy what was being predicted by this falling star. So, so in their time, three guys showing up saying, hey, we saw a star and we're looking for the king of the Jews, wouldn't get the same response as if somebody showed up and said, hey, I saw a star, it led me to Conway, I'm looking for the next president. That was not an odd thing at this point. Now, it, it often, for, for many of us, makes us go, well, okay, well, so what exactly was, what did they see? What was this star that they saw? And there's all kinds of, of fantastic and, and, and interesting things to think about and, and theories. And, and R.T. France notes three that he thinks are worth mentioning. Said it could have been Halley's Comet. Calculations tell us that it made its path through that time in 11 or 12, or I guess 12 or 11 BC, which is incredible to think about because I remember my parents taking me in the 80s to see Halley's Comet and now reading this going, was that what the wise men were like? I just thought it was like this thing. We looked at a microscope at Comitical Mountain and went home, no big deal. They saw something way better than what I saw. It could have been this, this planetary conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn overlapping that, that we know happened in 7 BC. 
And in fact, we know that when they overlapped in 7 BC, they did so in the middle of the the astrological sign of of Pisces, which they would have read because of what they thought and, and, and what we know about what they thought. Jupiter is the king planet. Saturn is, is the western planet. And Pisces is this, this end-time constellation. And so they would have seen this as perhaps as, well, here's a king from the west, which for them would have been Jerusalem, that's coming to bring in the end. That happened in 7 B.C. Or it could have been a, a supernova that we have record of from, from 5 or 4 B.C. that they, that they followed. What's fascinating to think about is, is indeed, the the providential God who rules over all creation, it's not at all beyond his ability to use the natural world to reveal something. But we have to recognize and hurry on to the next point of this anomalous revelation of Christ and recognize very quickly that that's not how we should be looking for God to reveal himself now. In fact, even in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 18.11, they're they're warned against looking for that kind of thing. In Isaiah 2 and in Isaiah 47, there, there are prophecies against Israel because rather than looking to the word of God, they looked for these signs and symbols in the natural world when God was right there in their midst saying, Here I am. This is who I am. This is how I am. And so while we can read this, while we can read this and be amazed that God in his providence saw fit to condescend to these pagan wise men in a way that they might understand and come and worship Jesus, we can also recognize that we, having received the word of God, no longer have to sit and ponder and wonder What do the stars mean? What are they telling us? What can we find there? Rather, we can go to his word and read the story of the birth of our king for the world. We can read the story of his manifestation, of his glory to the Gentiles. We can read the words of God. A more sure revelation. Now we know that God reveals himself in creation. The Bible tells us that. But we also know that it's not as clear. And so while we see such phenomenal things happening, even in God's word, we can recognize and even rejoice for what it is. God in his providence, in this anomaly of creation, revealed himself in such a way that he led these three men from the east to Jerusalem that the world might come and worship his son. It's unbelievable to think about. And then we get to verse 9 and and it gets even more unbelievable because this star, we're told, moves and leads them to, to, to a particular house. What we see is that that God is, in fact, providentially working and doing something amazing here. 
If we were to walk outside at night on a clear night and say, okay, which house is that star over? There would be no way to tell. It's too far away. Perhaps if you were just some math whiz and knew all kinds of wild trigonometry, you could figure out exactly which one it was over. But there's maybe two of us here that could do that. This star was leading them. God was at work through his creation to lead these men for his purposes that they might worship Jesus. That was his commitment to seeing Jesus given to the world. The second point we see is that this was a royal revelation of Christ to the world. Well, these three men that came weren't kings themselves. They were part of the function that they held in society at that time is that they were king makers. They were the ones who read the signs and and, and went as they were doing here to search out and find those who were being revealed as the new kings. They were incredibly important people. So important that when they show up, And ask Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we want to worship him. Herod doesn't brush them off. He's not like, who are these nuts? That are walking around following stars looking for a king. Like, somebody take care of them. In fact, we're told that it's not just Herod that is troubled by this. But all of Jerusalem is troubled. Everyone is going, wait a minute. If a new king has been born, what does that mean for us in our very tenuous political situation in which we find ourselves? Remember, Herod was was, uh, this half Jew that that was the Roman king for this Jewish province, but but also there there were these other Roman rulers, and and, and there was kind of this dual government happening in Israel at this time, and and there there was all kinds of of, of struggles and tensions. And and, and so when somebody comes and shows up and says, hey, there's a new king in town, there's going to be incredible questions. Herod was a wild man. And later in his life, he, he seems to have gone rather crazy. But he's still sharp enough to know that if these guys show up because they've seen some sign, then something is about to go down. And so what he does is, is he gathers all of his scribes and, and the Pharisees, the chief priests, and, and, and this speaks to the tension that would have been in Israel because Herod, as the ruler, didn't, we know, get along very well with the Sanhedrin, this council of, of scribes and chief priests and, and lay elders. They didn't really get along because these guys were very concerned with leading Israel into right worship, and Herod was concerned with appeasing the Romans, but but here they all come together to figure out what is going on. And so we're told, he asks, where was the Christ to be born? Perhaps the Messiah, the promised king in the line of David, perhaps that is who has come. 
Perhaps this long-promised servant, this long-promised king of Israel is who has been born. But we see with this reality of this royal revelation of Christ to the world that, that a king had come, that it is also an opposed revelation of Christ to the world. That Herod and Israel we're simply not interested in. We read in verses 7 and 8 that Herod summons the wise men and he does this secretly because he wants to know, when did you see the star? What's the time frame that we're working with here? Now, why does he want to know that? We're told in the next section that we're not going to consider this morning that he wanted to know that. So that he would know when he issued his decree to kill the children how old he needed to go to make sure that he got rid of this king who was a threat to him and his dynasty. He lies and says he wants to go and worship him so that the Magi perhaps won't get suspicious. But his real interest is in opposing this Christ in opposing this one who is being revealed as the Savior of the world, in opposing this one who had come by divine appointment, fully God and fully man, to bear the penalty for the sins of his people, to be the true king of Israel, to usher in the last days. Herod wanted nothing to do with it. And the opposition started with him. But as you read through the Gospels, we see that this opposition continued. It continued from the scribes and the Pharisees. It continued from many Jewish people. It continued from other leaders until finally he was put to death. But his death wouldn't stick, so to speak. Because he would rise in victory over that. Though opposed, this king would not be defeated. And in fact, if we read into the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 12, we see this same reality that he was opposed not just when we see all of these political machinations trying to get rid of this king, that what is behind that is Satan himself trying to oppose Christ. We see this in this cosmic Christmas story that's told in Revelation 12 that the woman gave birth to a child and Satan sought to destroy it. Herod here in his opposition is nothing more than a puppet of the one who has opposed God from the beginning. And here's what we must remember about this because it's instructive for us. When we see people opposing Christ, when we see people opposing the church, when we see people opposing us for the cause of Christ, as Paul says, not because we've messed up somehow, that's not the kind of suffering that Paul's concerned with, but when we suffer for the name of Christ, we can be sure of two things. One, Satan is behind it. And two, Satan has been defeated. It's the one for whom we suffer 
that is victorious. It's the one for whom we suffer that rose again. And so even if we are to face such political opposition as the king standing against us, we need not fear. For God is with us. And as that old hymn says, he will still give us aid. The next thing we see is that this is a fulfilling revelation of Christ to the world. Of course, there's this obvious point here where this, this mashup of Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2 are brought together to, to, to announce that the, the prophets told Israel long ago that, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Of, of this small tribe and that he would come to shepherd his people. And that's what the scribes and the Pharisees let King Herod know. That, oh, well, this is what we know from Scripture. We know that he's to be born in Bethlehem. And we know that he's coming to shepherd his people. We know that this is where this king will come from. And this is exactly what happened, isn't it? In God's providence... Mary and Joseph have to to leave their home to go back to Bethlehem to be counted for this census that was being taken. And in God's providence, all of this is unfolding while Mary is pregnant and and, and unfolding while Mary is, is relatively late in her pregnancy so that they get to Bethlehem and there the Messiah is born perfectly according to plan. But the levels of fulfillment that we find here go much deeper than that. For we see in this statement from 2 Samuel 5 that he will shepherd his people, that this is a fulfillment of all that was announced in Ezekiel 34 and other places in the prophets where where God rebuked the shepherds of Israel because they didn't shepherd the people, but they served and worked that they might get rich, that they might gain for themselves. And he said, I will shepherd my people. I will send a shepherd. I will do this job myself. And here we're being told that this baby is that shepherd. He's the one who has come in fulfillment of all of Scripture. But we see also that there are all of these other just amazing literary storylines that we follow. If you, if you like sports, you, you always hear they, they try to drum up, you know, interest in the game with, with storylines. And they, and they do all kinds of research to figure out like, oh, well, one time this athlete spent three weeks in this city that he's playing in now. So there's like drama because yeah, they, they want to come up with something more than just the game. If you're into to J.R. Tolkien, you're, you're like maybe like at an annoying level into like all the connections that can be made between all of these different books. Sorry, Abigail, you know, it's just it's just the way it is. But we love finding all of these deep connections. There's a fascinating connection here. If we go back to Jacob and Esau and we read Esau's genealogy we see repeatedly Edom is Esau Herod was an Edomite 
Here we see again the renewal of this seed theology that is developed throughout Scripture. Here we see again the renewal of this tension between Esau and Jacob. And here we see again the victory of Jacob. The victory of Israel. The victory of God's plan over anything that the world might come with. Over and over and over, we find these connections that unfold, that show us that this one is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. That he's the one who is to be worshipped. That he's the one who is to be exalted. That he's the one whom we, as the people of God, are to serve and follow. Finally, we see in the very last verse that these wise men were warned in a dream, another interesting revelation, not to go back the way they came. That Herod's up to something. And we see that this is a secure revelation of Christ to the world. As we read this story and, and we see things unfold, we're, we're inclined perhaps to think, how, how is this going to work out? How is it going to work out that the king wants you dead and your parents are of, are of no note whatsoever and, and have, they don't have the ability to protect you from someone with the power of the king? How in the world does this work out at all? But we see who's on their side being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God is aware. Even as he sang and had his people sing in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? In vain. It's utterly pointless. For, for even nations and kings to try to take their stand against God and against his anointed one. I love the next stanza. He who sits in the heavens laughs. I love that. It's so utterly demeaning. It's amazing. When, when it's, it's the worst thing in the world. I mean, perhaps maybe y'all are all nicer than I ever was, but, but you, you try to like be a punk and, like, and, and somebody just laughs at you. They're just not worried about it. You're no threat whatsoever to them or their plans. And so the nations of the world, considered individually or taken all together, uniting and and plotting, they're a joke to the plans of God. He's going to give them to his anointed one. And here he's doing that. Here he's he's saying, let me bring the wisdom of the nations to the cradle of Jesus Christ that they might offer gifts to him. Just like the Queen of Sheba did. Just like Balaam said they would. Just like is announced in Psalm 72. Just like is announced in Isaiah 
61, that they might bring gifts to my son, to my king. See, this revelation of Christ to the world is not something we have to fear being lost or being undone. It's perfectly secure according to God's eternal plan in him. This is why we can have confidence that the church, the very body of Christ, will endure to the end. We will stand to the very end. Because Christ will not be toppled. Even as a helpless baby, he will not be defeated. Even when it's a king who stands against him. We can have every confidence in the victory of our Savior. Not just for Israel, but for the world when we read this story. So let us not doubt who it is that Christ is for. Let us not doubt whether he will or won't in the end win. But let us in all boldness of the revelation of Christ to the world, take him to the world for which he came. That we all together might be blessed as we take refuge in him who is the inheritor of all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this glorious picture of Christ for the world. We thank you that that this is a secure revelation that we don't have to doubt. And we pray, Father, that you would teach us to trust our Savior and to trust you. And even as you have given the world to Christ, might we in obedience take him to the world. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.